Now in our Through the Bible, book by book, we've come to the first of the minor prophets, the prophecy of Hosea. I don't think we oftentimes recognize the derivation of these names, these Bible names. We who live just a few miles from San Jose ought to uh, recognize that uh, the name of this city, San Jose, is the same name as the name of this prophet. Uh, one is a Hebrew word, the other is a Spanish, but uh, in our English form it's Joseph, and this prophet's name was Joseph. But in its uh, Hebrew form it's Hosea, and you can see that the Spanish is much closer to the Hebrew than the English, Jose. Hosea was a young preacher in the nation of Israel, the ten northern kingdoms. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah and of the prophet Amos in the northern kingdom, and lived, as we're told in the first verse, during the reign of the kings Uzziah, Jotham, Haz, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in Judah, the southern kingdom, and during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Jeroboam was one of the wicked kings of Israel, and uh, the nation was going through a time of great difficulty when Hosea was preaching. It was a time when people were, were living it up, as we would put it, and didn't have much time for God. Now, they wouldn't say that, of course. Nobody ever says that when, when uh, it's true. But uh, they would have put it something like we do. It was a case of just not having quite enough time to, to fulfill the demands that God made upon them. They were so busy in so many other things. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was ready for the weekend. And as always, people paid a little attention to Hosea. He spoke of judgment and of chastisement, and he said that God was going to raise up the Assyrian nation to punish this people. Uh, people who would be fierce and ruthless and who would come sweeping across the land like a scourge. But the people paid little attention to him, and they said that Hosea's God must be a pretty vengeful kind of a character to talk like that. And Hosea tried to tell them differently. He said God was a God of love, and that his actions in doing this was really the activities of love because he was trying to get them to see what they themselves were doing to themselves. And the only way he could do it was to make things rough for them. But they didn't pay any more attention than people do today about things like that. And uh, they said they blamed God for it, and they said if God is really a God of love, then why doesn't he, why does he let things get in such a mess as this? And how could a God of love ever send a a ruthless people like the Assyrians down upon our land to treat our favored people. And so young Hosea found that he had a, a diminishing audience. Uh, people were polite to his face, I suppose, but they sneered behind his back. And uh, they found, he found that he was being given the nice but harmless treatment. That's what people do to preachers, usually. <laughs> When I was in England, uh, last fall I met a clergyman, an Anglican clergyman over there, who said the thing that bothered him most during the time of the 
of the uh, uh, Battle of Britain and before was signs, were signs that were erected in the public squares saying all persons must register for the draft except women, children, idiots, and clergymen. <laughs> and he said he didn't mind so much being included there, but he wished that at least they had put him ahead of the idiots. <laughs> so Hosea is rather discouraged and defeated. And in the opening chapters of this little prophecy, we get a personal note about him. He went to God, and God told him to do a strange thing. God said, I want you to get married. I think Hosea brightened up at that because he was a bachelor. And God said, I have a girl picked out for you. <clears throat> and uh, when he mentioned her name, Hosea's heart must have turned flip-flops. Because the name of this girl was Gomer the most beautiful girl in Israel. <laughs> well, you laugh at that name, but uh, uh, as you read between the lines of this prophecy, you can see she was a beautiful girl. And Hosea was definitely interested. But God said to him, I want you to know the whole story about this girl. You, if you marry her, and I want you to marry her, she's going to be unfaithful to you. And in fact, she will end up as nothing but a common street prostitute. But I want you to marry her anyway. Now, doubtless, Hosea was very puzzled by this strange command of God's. This is on the line, you know, with that command of God to Abraham to take his son out and kill him, put him to death. God does strange things at times, things we don't always understand. And we can't categorize. They don't seem to fit into what we think we know of him. And this was one of those strange things. He told Hosea, I want you to marry this girl, and, I, and she's going to be a harlot, just a, street com, a common street prostitute. But you're going to have three children, two boys and a girl. And when they're born, I want to name them for you. So Hosea... Uh, I think, perhaps began to understand a little bit of what God was doing. He knew it was customary in Israel to teach by symbols, that God often used this method of instructing his people, and that names meant very much, that the meaning of names were often used by God to teach Israel certain truths, and that God, therefore, was planning to use this prophet in his family as an object lesson for his people. This was happening also with his friend Isaiah down in the southern kingdom. Isaiah had two boys, and you remember their names were jawbreakers, but they meant something. There was Shear Jashub, which means uh, a remnant shall return. That was God's promise to Israel that even though they went into captivity, there would be a remnant come back. And then there was the older boy, whose name was Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I don't know how they ever called these children to lunch in those days. <laughs> Maher Shalal Hashbaz means haste to the prey and haste to the spoil. And it was God's prophetic way of telling the nation that they were in trouble. But he also comforted them by the words, a remnant shall return. So Hosea went courting, and sure enough, Gomer was attracted to this shy young man, 
And uh, at last he summoned up the energy to ask her to marry him, and to his great relief, she said yes. And so they were married. And at first it was heaven on earth. Uh, Hosea loved this girl. You can't read this prophecy without seeing that. And they must have been wonderfully happy together for a while. And then they had their first child. And it was a boy, as God had said. And Hosea's heart was filled to bursting. And he went to God for the name of this boy. What should we name the lad? And to his surprise, God picked the name Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is a word that means castaway. And it was a name of shame in Israel. All of us are familiar with that story, that bloody story of Queen Jezebel and Ahab, and how uh, Ahab cheated his neighbor out of his property and stole his neighbor's vineyard, and Jezebel was the wicked queen that put him up to it, and how at last God's judgment fell on that wicked queen, and she was looking out her upper story window one day when a general, Jehu, was down in the courtyard, and you remember... Uh, he ordered the servants to throw Jezebel out the window. And she, uh, they threw her out, and she fell down on the pavement, of course, and was killed, and the dogs ate her up down there. And the name of that courtyard ever since was called Jezreel. Now, that was the name God picked for Hosea's oldest boy, his first son. But Hosea named the baby this, and he understood that God was thus warning his people that there would, they too would be cast away if they didn't recognize the folly of their active actions, the way they were going after uh, idols and, and, uh, and uh, the whoredoms of the people around them and giving way to abominable practices and uh, trying to be like everybody else around them. And God was warning them this way. Well, in the course of time, another child was born to Hosea, a daughter. And this one was named Lo-Ruhamah, which means unpitied. Imagine naming your little baby girl unpitied. And it meant that God would no longer have pity on his people if they continued on in their stubborn rebellion, that his patience was wearing thin that after some hundreds of years of trying to reach this stubborn people, he was warning them that they were getting near the end and that there would come a time when he wouldn't pity them any longer, but he would hand them over to the, to the uh, invading armies. And when this little girl was weaned, as you read through these first chapters, we read that his wife Gomer conceived again and bore a third child, another little boy. And this one, God named Lo-Ami, not my people. For God was saying, you are not my people, and I will not be your God. You'll see that at the end of chapter 2, if you look at it. Uh, that God had said that he would name uh, these boys this as a sign to his people, but there would come a day when he would say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, Thou art my God, and he will have pity on not pitied. So that even through this time of announcing of judgment, there is also the grace of God being shown. Now after this, there were no more children in Hosea's household. 
And Gomer, his wife, began to fulfill the sad prediction that God had made when he told Hosea to marry her in the first place. What a heartbreak it must have been to this young preacher as he heard the whispers that began to circulate about his wife and what happened when he was away on preaching trips. Perhaps even his own children may have dropped some unconscious remarks about the men who visited home when daddy was away. And soon the children were left uncared for, and Gomer was wasting all her time running around with these other fellows. And at last, Hosea came home one day to find a note saying that Gomer had decided to find the happiness that she felt she deserved, and that she was leaving him and the children to follow the man she really loved. You know how those notes go. Dear John, about this time, there came a new note into Hosea's preaching. He still warned of judgment to come and the fact that God was going to send the Assyrians down across the land, but he didn't announce it with thunder anymore. He said it with tears. And he began to speak of a day when love would at last triumph, when after the bitter lesson was learned that the way of the transgressor is hard, that Israel would yet turn back to the God who loved her. And instead of unpitied, they would be called pitied. And instead of not my people, they would be named my people again. But poor Gomer passed from man to man until at length she fell into the hands of a man who was unable to pay for her food and her clothing. And her first lover had given her a mink stole, but this one forced her to clothe herself from the Goodwill store. And news of her miserable state came to the prophet, and he sought out the man she was living with, and he knew where he would find her, him down at the local tavern. And uh, when he came in, he met this man, and it doesn't say this in the scriptures, but I'm sure the conversation probably went something like this. He said to him, are you the man that's living with Gomer, the daughter of Deblaine? And he, the man must have looked at him and said, well, if it's any of your business, I am. And uh, Hosea said, well, I'm Hosea, her husband. And there was a moment of tension there. Hollywood could make a lot of this. But uh, the man said, what do you want? I haven't done anything wrong. And Hosea said, well, I'm not interested in causing trouble, but I know that you're having difficulty making ends meet, and I want you to take this money here and buy Gomer some clothing and see that she has plenty of food, and if you need any more, I'll give it to you. So the man took the money, doubtless thinking, well, there's no fool like an old fool. If this sucker wants to help out... Uh, Paying for her expenses, that's all right with me. And he took the money and went home and bought her some groceries and took it home. Now, you say that's a foolish thing for a man to do, but who can explain the madness of love? Love is, uh, is apart from reason and has its own reasons. Love is not according to logic, you know. Love is according to love. And so the Hosea acted on the basis of love, 
And doubtless he was watching from the distance as he caught a glimpse from time to time of the woman that he loved. As she rushed out the door to take the groceries from this man's arms and to thank him for what he was bringing to her. The gifts that true love had provided and which uh, villainy offered to her and folly accepted. Well, how long this went on, we don't know for sure. But at last word came that the woman that Hosea loved was to be sold in the slave market. Her husband had tired of her her present husband, and uh, he, she was to be sold as a slave. And the broken-hearted prophet didn't know what to do. He went weeping to God. And God said, Hosea, do you love this woman? Despite all that she's done to you? And Hosea nodded through his tears. And God said, then, I want you to go show your love for her in the same way that I love the nation Israel. So Hosea went to the marketplace, and he watched Gomer brought up and placed on the dock. And there she was stripped of all her clothing and uh, stood naked before the crowd. And the auctioneer pinched her and prodded her and showed how strong she was. And uh, then the bidding began, and somebody bid three pieces of silver, and Hosea raised it to five. Somebody else upped it to eight, and he bid ten. Somebody went to eleven, he went to twelve. And then Hosea uh, said he would give fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. And the auctioneer's gavel fell, and Hosea had his wife back. And he went to her and clothed her, put her clothes on her, and he led her away by the hand and took her to his home. And then follows what is perhaps the most beautiful verse in all the Bible. As Hosea led her away, he said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the harlot or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. He pledged his love to her anew. And that was all this poor woman could take. She'd gotten down to the very dregs of shame and disgrace, but the love of this man broke her heart. And from this time on, Gomer is faithful to Hosea. She made him a, an honest, industrious, faithful wife. And the rest of the book of Hosea simply goes on to tell the effect of this story on the nation of Israel. How God said to them, O oh Israel, how can I give thee up? And how he traced his love for them through the years, how he reminded them of his goodness, and again and again they turned their back to him, and how the final picture of the book is one of beauty and glory, for it looks on to the day when Israel at last shall return to God, her true husband, and shall say, What have I to do with idols? I have seen him and heard him, and he has won my heart. There are certain outstanding passages in Hosea that uh, are remarkable predictions. One, for instance, occurs at the close of chapter 3 in verse 5, when in, right in line with this story of Hosea's personal life, God says about the people of Israel. Afterward, he says, or, or verse 4, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, 
without sacrifice or pillar, without effort or terrapin. Now that's a prophecy that's being fulfilled right today. The children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king, that is, without any open, acknowledged government. And ever since the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. at the hands of General Titus of the Roman armies, Israel has been without a king or without a prince, that is, without any secret government, without anyone who has the right to reign over Israel, uh, uh, any human being recognized, or without a sacrifice. In just a few weeks, uh, the Jews of the world will gather together for the Passover supper, that supper instituted in Egypt when Israel was delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. And God had told Israel that every time they, they ate the Passover, they were to kill a lamb. But for 2,000 years, the Jews have never killed a lamb. Why not? Why do they have a bone, a burned bone, for a sacrifice? For two, God had said they shall live many days without a sacrifice. And since the destruction of the temple, there's never been a sacrifice in Israel, or a pillar that is an idol, or without an ephod or a teraphim, that is without idolatry, they shall live as a religious people, but without giving themselves to idols. And then verse 5, afterward, afterward, after these days are ended, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. What a wonderful prophecy that is. You get another one similar to it in the close of chapter 5, where Israel says, verse 15, I will return, God says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress they seek me, saying, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he is torn, that he may heal us. He has stricken, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. That's the hope of Israel, that their Messiah will yet come to them and water them and revive them and raise them up again. And when you get to the closing chapters of this, through all the heartache and the, and the sorrow and the hurt in the heart of God, you come at last to the final picture. In chapter 14, God says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. After all, it wasn't God who was to blame. He was simply trying to get them to see the truth. And the only thing that could correct their agony is to return. That's always the case. God can't bless us. He can't restore us till we come back. And so God says, take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity, except that which is good, and we will render the fruit of our lips as praise. Assyria shall not save us, 
and will not ride upon horses, that is, no military power is going to avail. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands, idolatry. But indeed, the orphan finds mercy. And God's response is, I will heal their faithlessness. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be as the dew to Israel. He shall blossom as the lily. He shall strike root as the poplar. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish as a garden. They shall blossom as the vine. Their fragrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have you to do with idols? That's a better rendering than what have I. What have you to do with idols? It's I who answer and look after you. I am an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And the prophet adds this lesson out of the ache of his own heart. And yet the joy of restored love. He says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Now, You see in this beautiful story all the elements of the eternal triangle, don't you? There's the loving God, the faithless human heart, and the deceiving vanity of the world. This is your story and my story, isn't it? We have tried to satisfy ourselves all so many times with lying delusions of self or wealth or a good time. Ours is the blindness, you see, like Gomer's, that cannot distinguish between lust and love. We've tried to run from God and drown our miseries in empty pleasures or drink or work or social life. But as surely as we think we've escaped, as surely as we think we've gotten away, we turn and there's the touch of God upon our sleeve, the touch of love. And he's saying, my child... My name and my nature are love, and I must act according to what I am. And when you're tired of all your running and your wandering and your heartbreak, I'll be there to draw you to myself again. That's the story of the of the Bible, isn't it? At Bethlehem, God entered the slave market, where the whole human race was put up for auction, selling itself prostituting itself, prostituting its humanity to the cheapened forces of life. But on the cross, the Lord Jesus paid the price, the full price, and bought us back. And this is the story, then, of the love of God and the heart of God, the hunger in the heart of God to make his people whole persons as he intended them to be. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful story from the Old Testament, how it touches our own hearts and softens us, how we see the tenderness of thy love and the and the irresistibility of it that pursues and waits and hurts and hungers. And Lord, we pray that we may be responsive 
we may see that no other answer satisfies. No other power can meet our need. No other love can heal. Help us to turn like Israel will turn someday to thee. Help us to return to thee, Lord, whenever we turn aside, remembering that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and we're restored by grace. We pray in his name. Amen.